The subject of the talk this evening is and love. For me, certainly, and I know that for many people, we come to spiritual practice out of a deep yearning to know the truth of who it is that we are, or what it is that we are. We feel the pain of being disconnected from that understanding. On the one hand, it's possible that we feel that we live our lives so much according to the orchestration of forces far removed from our center. We feel the needs and expectations of our parents and friends that have force even in our adulthood and often long after these people have died. We've known too the molding of educational systems designed so much to stereotype and not in any way to value the beauty of our individuality and our diversity. We live too in a society that prizes so much conformity and punishes us if we rock the boat in any way. And then too in our relationships, we can feel the gridlock of the expectations that we have of ourselves in relationship and also the expectations of the other person. And then of course there's the power and the force of the media and the television and the advertising. A force so enormous and so manipulative in our world. There can be this real sense that we are losing ourselves, that we're disconnected in all of this conditioning. And then on the other hand too, for many of us, we come to feel the great pain of being blown around like a leaf in the winds of our emotions as they come and go. The forces of fear and anger, confusion. And we see too how easy it is to be lost and deeply affected by situations and circumstances outside of ourselves, with no feeling of groundedness and clarity and inner reference. All of these are such powerful conditioning forces in our world and within ourselves. And all of this too can create a great barrenness within, a great poverty of the heart. It's really a big part of the great existential suffering, the first noble truth of which the Buddha spoke two and a half thousand years ago. <coughs> and it can be so painful And what is also painful is to know that so much 
of humanity lives so completely imprisoned by these forces in our world. And yet, for some of us, there comes to be a sense, perhaps even a deep knowing, that who we are is much greater than this limitation from all and all this conditioning that smothers our great spirits. There comes to be an urgent need to live far more from a knowing of who we are. And so we set forth on our spiritual journeys. We heed our own particular call to destiny, our call to truth. This is a poem by Rilke. He says, Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking. Because of a church that stands somewhere in the east, and his children say blessings on him, as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his home stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses, so that his children have to go far out into the world, towards that same church which he forgot. And coming here, as we do, and doing what it is that we do here, is really the groundwork for a wonderful return to our hearts, and perhaps a return home. Perhaps even to hear a song that we forgot a long time ago. I'd like to tell you about a tribe in Africa where I was born and where I grew up. In this particular tribe, the birthdays are not celebrated on the day that the child is born. Neither is the birthday celebrated on the day that the child is conceived. But rather, the birthday is celebrated on the day that the child is first thought of. And what happens is the mother goes out from the village when she decides that she wishes to have a child. And perhaps she finds a tree under which she sits, and then she just listens. She listens for the song of the child that she's decided to have. And when she hears that song really well, she teaches it to her husband. And that song then becomes a part of the mating ritual between the woman and the man. And it's the song that she sings during the pregnancy. And it's also sung when the child is born. This is the song of that child. And on each birthday the song is sung, and, and those moments that are celebrated tribally in that child's life, maybe puberty, any sort of rites of passage, the song is sung. And on the wedding day, the song of both the son or the husband and the wife are both sung together. And the last time that the song is sung is when the child's body, now adult, is lowered into its grave.
for me, the path of meditation is in some ways very much like this. It's a way in which we can reconnect and remember all that we forgot and perhaps all that we never knew about ourselves. And what is our song? And how is it that we can hear it again? Certainly it seems that we need to awaken to all it is that we cannot hear and see and know about ourselves. We need to be much less a victim of the circumstances and forces of our lives, feeling a need to blame and to praise. We need to be perhaps a lot more like the fir trees outside, able to bend in the winds that blow, with a real sense of balance and equanimity. And this is really the stuff of the meditation practice, because the crisis really seems to be one of awareness. And when we engage the forces of our lives, both within and without ourselves, when it is that we stop running from all it is that who we are, and from all it is that is painful, when we can be present, really, with all that it, there is in our lives, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, what Zorba the Greek called the whole catastrophe, when we can be present with the whole catastrophe, this would seem to them be the gateway to a reconnection with the truth of our being and the beginning of knowing a real, deep, and profound joy and happiness in our lives. And so we start sitting, as we do here. We be present inward, and it's really hard. Sometimes it seems almost as though it gets worse. <laughs> and it can be so discouraging. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <laughs> I remember the first long retreat that I did. I was absolutely swamped. And I was so exasperated. And one evening, Joseph gave a talk. And he, he, he quoted the Buddha, who said that, that the Dharma is beautiful at the beginning, it's beautiful in the middle, and it's beautiful at the end. And I said to Joseph, I said, there's utterly nothing beautiful about what I'm dealing with. I said, it's so hard. And he said, you know, there's a break-even point. You know, there's a break-even point. And I think there is, you know, and it just requires a real long enduring mind and a real willingness to just be present. Apparently there's a sign in Las Vegas that says that you have to be present to win. <laughs> 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 
I remember reading somewhere also long ago, I don't know if it's in the scriptures, but uh, it, it was said that there are four ways that we deepen. We either deepen slowly with a lot of suffering, or we deepen slowly with no suffering, or we deepen really rapidly with a lot of suffering, or rapidly with no suffering. And I, I always thought that I was definitely one of the slow ones with a lot of suffering. <laughs> but it really doesn't matter how it is that it happens. The key is, is always mindfulness. It's really the essence of the practice. It appears on all the lists, and I'm sure that you've heard again many, many lists over these months that I've been away. The one that I like the most is the seven factors of enlightenment, which are these incredible factors of mind, which when they come to maturity in our hearts and mind, they poise us for the deepest understanding. These factors of joy, um, let me see if I can remember them, <laughs> concentration, rapture, equanimity, energy, Da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the other one is, of course, mindfulness. And it's said that mindfulness is the warp against which the other six are woven. It's really the bottom line. I know that when Carol was here, in the fall of last year, she spoke about the four foundations of my mindfulness. You hear it in the meditation instructions. Tonight I'd like to speak about awareness, mindfulness, not so much in a classical way, but um, in a way that I personally have found very helpful over the years. Now's the time when I confess where I've been the last three months. <laughs> uh, the Hawaiian Islands <laughs> came into being through volcanic activity, of course, eons ago. And I, I spent the last six and a half weeks on Maui. And Maui is dwarfed by Haleakala volcano which rises 12,000 feet from the ocean. It's really huge. It rises very rapidly. And one morning early, I drove up the 12,000 feet to, to, to the top of the volcano. And as you go up, it's very tropical at the coast, and it just gets more temperate until when you get to the top, there's utterly nothing. It's lava rock and there's no vegetation. I just want to step back from that for a moment. If any of you ever have the great happiness of visiting South Africa, where I grew up, you're likely to visit Cape Town. And there's also a great mountain there, too. It's called Table Mountain. And Table Mountain is right on the tip of the African continent. And if you stand on top of Table Mountain, there's a sign that says, the furthest place from this point is Hawaii. 
if you went right through the center of the earth, Hawaii would be on the other side. And on the slopes of Table Mountain, there grows a plant that grows nowhere else in the world. And it has flowers that are the national flower of South Africa. And seeds from that flower were taken to Hawaii. And the only other place that they grow is on Haleakala volcano. And this is that flower. It's called a protea. Dear Kate, what have I done? Spilled the water. Spilled the water. If you stand on top of Haleakala volcano, it's so high that you look down on the clouds around you. I went down into the crater of the volcano. It's of course dormant. And um, that's another 2,000 feet down. You go down the sliding sands trail. And it was nothing like I've ever seen in my life before. It was a domain that was completely foreign to my existence. This magnificent black and red and gray lava rock. And these huge cinder cones that spewed out lava so long ago. The only plant that grows there is called a silver sword. And they grow for about 12 or 15 years and they bear one flower and then they die. And there are not many of them left. My mind was riveted. It was utterly still and transfixed by this awesome spectacle around me. I was alone and it was deadly quiet. There was no chatter. It was just a really unbelievable and full moment. And I was sitting on this great big piece of lava rock, looking out on these cinder cones that were near and far. And for one intense moment, my mind sort of grappled and went crazy, trying to find some sort of reference for what it is that I was seeing. And then I realized that it was just beyond comparison. And I sat there for the longest time, utterly still, like a child. And a mind that can be utterly still with a childlike freshness and wonder is a very powerful mind. It is so different from the adult mind that needs to compare and analyze and judge and comment. And it's that quality, that childlike quality of mind that is perhaps one of the greatest keys to freedom in meditation. Shunru Suzuki was a, a wonderful Zen master who died in the 70s. This is what he said. He said, people say that practicing Zen is difficult, but there is a misunderstanding as to why. It is not difficult because it's hard to sit cross-legged 
or to attain enlightenment. It is difficult because it is hard to keep our mind pure and our practice pure in its fundamental sense. I am interested in helping you keep your practice from becoming impure. In Japan we have a phrase shoshin, which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. Suppose you recite the Prajnaparamita Sutra only once. It might be a very good recitation. But what would happen if you recited it twice, or three times, four times, or more? You might easily lose your original attitude towards it. The same thing will happen in your meditation. For a while you will keep your beginner's mind. But if you continue to meditate one, two, three years or more, although you may improve some, you're liable to lose the limitless meaning of your original mind. Our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. It's really a lovely practice, the practice of the beginner's mind. It's so freeing. For the truth is, how many breaths have we watched? And how pure, how original is our seeing of those breaths? For what is true is that we live in a world that really prizes knowledge and understanding. The need to categorize and understand and analyze and compare is deeply conditioned. And these are all words. These are all concepts. These are all extra. Presence in meditation is the opposite of this. It's not surprising that it's difficult to give bare attention to our experience. That quality and power of mind that does not judge or conceptualize or add to or cling to in any way. And you've noticed, perhaps, we're moving here from concepts to reality. This is really the meditative shift. It's really important. And what is difficult is that we have to use words to describe something that is beyond words. I'll let somebody else use words here. The Upanishads, which is an Indian scripture, says, there 
the eye goes not, speech goes not, nor the mind. We know not, we understand not how one would teach it. And the Tao Te Ching, which is a Taoist scripture, says the Tao that can be expressed is not the eternal Tao. I like this one. This is Chang Su, who's a great Taoist sage. He says, if it could be talked about, everybody would have told their brother. (laughs) (laughs) So as we begin in our sitting meditation and in our walking meditation, to experience life less conceptually, a lot happens that seems to be very different. On the one hand, perhaps, when we experience our bodies in this way, we may come to see that everything that happens in our bodies is a manifestation of one of the four elements. That's all. Everything is a manifestation of one or more of the four elements. And if it's the fire element, it's temperature, hot or cold. And if it's the earth element, it's either pressure, hardness, softness. And if it's the air element, it's the movement, any sort of movement, twitching, tingling, shaking. And then the water element is the element of cohesion, the one that holds the other three together. Everything right down in its bare experience is a manifestation of one of the four elements. It seems so simple. But it is the natural conditioned response of our mind to want to know more than the bare experience of what's going on. We want to understand, we want to judge, we want to comment. And it's in this wanting that the I is born. The I who knows, who judges, and who comments. Subject and object. How can we dismantle this tendency of mind? How can we interrupt this? Can there be a willingness to not want to know? There's a a great Zen master, he's living, his name is Sun Sanim. He lives in Providence, Rhode Island. And he often used to come to IMS at the end of three-month courses. And he has this sort of robust, exuberant energy and um, his teaching is very simple, sort of thunderous, you know. He would come in and we'd all be quiet, you know, we haven't spoken for three months. And he would say, all you want is your don't know mind, don't know mind. And he'd say, that's all, nothing more. Whatever comes up, don't know, don't know. Imagine that. Imagine if we could have a don't know mind where we're not wanting to know We're just willing to experience. If we can receive our experience with a don't-know mind, it can be like a knife cutting through all the conceptualizing that happens. 
Sometimes I use it as a mantra. If things are going on and there's a lot of chatter, just that willingness to not need to know is so powerful and it can interrupt so much. It's so different to what is happening in our world. It's almost radical when you come to think of it. There's a lot of letting go. There's a lot of allowing things to be just as they are. And what it is that is being let go of is potentially so freeing if we don't feel that deep, urgent need to want to grapple and wrangle with each moment of our experience. When I was on retreat, Carol Wilson sent me this quote. What she didn't do was she didn't tell me who wrote it, but uh, I'd like to read it because I think it's really beautiful and I'm going to see her tomorrow, so I'll find out who it is. She says, or whoever says, when the fears of the mind have been worked out upon the field of the heart, the mind sinks into the heart, into reality, and becomes one with it. Conscious relationship is established, in fact. Now the heart can be lived. Faith can be lived, not in ignorance, but in true understanding. Understanding now no longer serves as proof of, of faith. One can live in his knowingness and unknowingness without fear or inhibition. Ignorance is not a limit to those who live in faith. Ignorance is not a limit to those who live in faith, but only for those who, living in ignorance without faith, seek knowledge as security against fear. I'll read that last one again. Ignorance is not a limit to those who, living in faith, for those who live in faith, but only for those who, living in ignorance, without faith, seek knowledge as security against fear. We're talking refinements here, and it seems appropriate that after nine months of, of being together in various ways here, that we do so, because real deepening of practice is the refinement of attention. And it seems really vital that we explore this particular aspect. We can become more and more aware of the subtlest shadings of greed, hatred, and delusion that cloud our seeing. And this is the beginning of real deeper, deeper freedoms. And of course, as this refinement happens in our sittings, so it is that we see more and more in our lives, possibly, that we didn't see before. And for me, certainly, this is one of the beauties of this practice, and certainly the reason why my own refuges in the teachings of the Buddha 
seem to just deepen and deepen and become more and more appreciative. I become more and more appreciative of them. So in talking of the refinements here, we're really talking of subtleties. One of the things that we see as we examine our experience is how much of life is in process. And this helps us develop patience. We learn and we understand what it is that helps and what hinders that process. And this can be very freeing. It can enable us to live our lives with greater balance and with greater harmony. But what can also happen, and I really worked with this a lot on this last retreat that I sat, is that our awareness can be shaded by the understanding of process in an unhelpful way. Our attentiveness, our awareness can carry with it an assumption that each moment is a process rather than a moment that is full and complete and potentially freeing in and of itself. I'd just like to say that again. We can, we can, our awareness can carry with it an assumption that each moment is a process rather than a full, complete, potentially freeing moment in and of itself. We're talking refinements here, and I'd like to give you an example that would perhaps be helpful. When we first met, long ago in July or August, I gave a talk on forgiveness, which I believe a number of you have heard. During that talk, or part of that talk, I spoke about my years at boarding school in South Africa. And I spoke about um, the physical and sexual abuse that happened for me during my time at that boarding school, and the forgiveness related to what happened there. And I emphasized and spoke much about the importance of patience and the importance of understanding that very often forgiveness is a process. That each layer of forgiveness really opens up to a deeper layer as the healing happens, a deeper layer presents itself for healing. During this retreat that I sat over Christmas, it's like my own flower opened a little further. And I'm now living with the recollection and full memories that really that abuse began much earlier, that it really began when I was about three or four months old and continued right through, the infant, through my infancy. I have full memory now and recall of what happened. And a few days after this information started surfacing, I was sitting with a friend at Barry and telling her what was happening. And she said to me, now you're going to have to deal with the whole process of rage and fear and anger and shame. She said, it's going to be so much. And this voice came up that said, no. She said, I, I, uh, she, <laughs> this, this, oh, could have been, this, <laughs> this, 
this voice said, no, I said, this is going, I'm going to allow this to be absolutely as it is. I'm not going to let it pass through any infrastructure of how I believe it should be. And so I allowed it to be as it was, complete, just moments, one after the other. And each time my mind started projecting into the future, I interrupted it. And it was nothing like I could have imagined it to be. It was certainly nothing like my first experience of dealing with the history. Instead, there was this great feeling of calm and of presence and of gratitude. None of the volcanic emotions that I dealt with before came up this time. And I realized that perhaps this information is really just the final pieces of an old puzzle, and that I'd really done all that work before. And if I had received this information, believing that I now needed to go through some process, my experience could have been very different. And I believe that in our seeing, in our meditation practice, it is exactly the same. That if we can free ourselves from any assumptions of what any moment means, we are then poised at each moment. And each moment then has the possibility of the most profound freedoms for us. Each moment is complete and each moment is full. And the question then is, can we receive each moment that purely? Just this moment, this moment, this moment, as is, as is, as is. <coughs> no assumptions, nothing extra just each moment as it is. For me, in the most fundamental sense, taking refuge in the Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha, is taking refuge in each moment as it is. It is so easy to postpone freedom. And certainly one way to receive and relate to each moment in our lives is to receive it as anything less than full. And if we do that, we really cheat ourselves. There's a famous sutra. A sutra is uh, like a teaching of the Buddha that says, in the seeing, there is just what is seen. In the hearing, there is just what is heard. In the sensing, there is just what is sensed. And sensed here means taste, touch, smelling. And in the thinking, there is just what is thought. And when we see ourselves substantially existing within the boundaries of our bodies and our opinions and our separateness, 
We are imprisoned by the limits of that seeing, by the duality of me and the other, of me and what is seen. And by not grasping at our experience, so when we're sitting and we give bare attention to a sound, by not grasping at that sound, by not commenting on that sound, when there's a sensation in our knee, by just barely experiencing that sensation without aversion or comment or judging, by not grasping at any aspect of our experience as being me, the self, we go beyond the duality of that experience. And when we do that, then in the seeing, there is just what is seen. There is just what is seen, what is heard, what is sensed, what is thought. No Gavin, no Bani, no Rupa. It just is what is happening. Our looking is not analytical and it is not discursive in any way. It is like being in the presence of what the Native Americans call the great mystery. Being present with the great mystery, becoming still and silent and utterly clear and vigilant in its presence and thereby really penetrating to the roots of what is happening through our limitations, through our separateness, through our fear, we can then discover the wholeness of who it is that we are. And really once we stop the struggling and once we stop controlling and allow things to be just as they are, then the natural wisdom and joy and vibrancy of our being can begin to come through. And then perhaps we can hear our song again. This is a poem by Hans Shan. He says, In my former days of bitter poverty, Every night I counted other people's wealth. Today I thought and thought, then thought it through. Everyone must really make their own. I dug and found a hidden treasure, a crystal pearl, completely pure. Even if that blue-eyed foreigner of great ability wanted to buy it secretly and take it away, I would immediately tell him that this pearl has no price. This pearl has no price. And what is this pearl of no price? It's the awakened mind. It's the original mind that Shunru Suzuki spoke of. It's our Buddha nature. And for me, increasingly, I see that awareness is the highest gesture of love that I believe that we humans can give to one another, to our world, and to ourselves. That being present to one another in a full and uncritical way 
is a rare gift on a planet that feels so busy and so distracted and so much gasping for breath. And it is here that love and awareness seems to have its confluence. And love in this sense is not particularly a matter of doing anything. It's not a matter of finding an object of our attention or a matter of being sentimental in any way. Neither is it an ability to gratify our egos, but rather it is an attitude of receptivity, openness, profound appreciation, and really complete acceptance. And it all begins with one in-breath and one out-breath. And that is why we come here. And it would seem that that is why we do what we do. And why we have created for ourselves here, in community, a gift really beyond measure. And personally, why I feel so privileged and grateful to be a part of us. This is Trumpa. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find as you look closely that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Where is your heart if you look? If you rarely look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or if you've fallen possessively in love, but that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel a tremendous sadness. Ultimately, this kind of sadness does not come because you've been mistreated, because someone has insulted you, or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin, there is no tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is open and tender and very personal. And this open fearlessness comes from letting the world touch your heart. Thank you. May we sit together for a few moments, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.